0: And we are going to be reading a portion of Lamentations, beginning in chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 2, verse 10. And it's so a little bit different. I'm not going to follow the chapter divisions. Um, they aren't fitting into um, my message, and, and uh, I don't know if the theme is, is uh, best served by the chapter divisions placed here. And So we're going to be picking up in Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 8. Through chapter 2, verse 10, and I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her. Because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord! Behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant places, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Behold and see." If there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above he has sent fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound, they were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye eye overflows with water because the Comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them, for the Lord is righteous. I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves. At home it is like death. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you, and do to them as you have done to me, for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel, and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow. With his right hand, like an adversary, he has slain all who are pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar, and he has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. Well, we continue... Our study in Jeremiah, and as we did last week, we saw the interlude where following the fall of Jerusalem, we want to look in the response to its fall. And the response isn't just Jeremiah's response. We really, really haven't even gotten to that part of Lamentations, nor will we today. Um, what, what Lamentations has for us is really a city's response Um, to what is occurring within her and to her. And when we talk about the city's response, uh, as we talked about a little bit last week, some of this is personification. That is, um, the the city itself, the buildings, the walls, the sanctuary, uh, the land is responding to what's happening. And also, uh, the the cumulative response of the people um, to what is transpired in the city. And we see that, again, somewhat of a personification here where uh, obviously there wasn't someone who was saying these things, but it is a reflection of what is going on in the hearts and minds of the people that were resident there within her. And so when we find most of what is being shared here in the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, who is the speaker? Well, the speaker is Jerusalem. Uh, that's really who the speaker is. Uh, Look at what's happened to my virgins, to my young men, to my mighty men, to um, those people that used to populate me. Uh, Look at them, they're gone, they've been destroyed. Look at what's happened to the mothers, to the children. Um, And so we really get to look at this through the lens of the city itself, watching what is happening to the people within her, and not as as a detached person, but as someone that has a relationship with the citizens there and recognizes what has gone on there. And so we, we come to this portion of Scripture and um, we would anticipate that we would hear a lot about um, what's happened, and we are going to see that, but we're, we would almost expect that it's going to all be focused on the Babylonians. But one of the things I hope you notice is that the Babylonians didn't get blamed for any of this. There are only two, well, there's one instance that we are going to see that in our passage where it says, remember them, O Lord, and do to them what, you, what they've done to us. Um, that is going to be there, but the whole thrust of this portion of Scripture identifies two agents of what has occurred. Number one is the transgression or the sin of the residents of Israel, of Judah, Jerusalem. That it's because of our sin, our transgressions, our wickedness, our evil, that God has been prompted to this. And, um, and we've seen several occasions where that has been specifically declared. Um, here in chapter 1, we already looked at it uh, a bit earlier, but we find, uh, of course, where we started is in verse 8. The reason we started there was to read that Jerusalem has sinned gravely. And therefore, she has become vile. And so, there's a recognition that this was self-imposed. And that is critical to the latter half of the book of Lamentations. Because when we get to the latter parts of Lamentations, we're going to start hearing about God's grace and mercy, that God isn't going to stay angry. And, well, what is necessary to move from God's anger to God's uh, grace and mercy to God remembering the covenant, where here it seems like he has just totally thrown out the covenant. Well, one facet of that is the necessity of the people of Israel to make this kind of statement. We have sinned grievously. We have transgressed. We have brought this on ourselves. And when we encounter individuals, I think one of the things we find lacking many times, when people Reap what they've sown is to deny that they ever reaped it. I'm sorry, deny that they ever sowed it. They're reaping what they've sown, but they deny that they ever sowed to that. And they start pointing their finger at God and saying, How could you let this happen? And all they remember about their past is that they went to church, um, they they did this, they did that, and much like the people standing before Christ of the judgment. Where they're saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this for you? And didn't I do that for you? And didn't I say this for you? And he's like, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. You're a worker of iniquity. Um, All they remembered was, well, we did these religious things. And Israel could have easily been in that condition, couldn't they? Well, we are your, and that's the way they were up until this day. They were talking about, well, we are, this is your holy mountain. We are the keepers of your law. Uh, we are your special people, we are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it goes on and on and on, you know. But they were being purposefully blind to the fact that they were bringing in Canaanite worship into the, that very holy mountain and desecrating it, um, that they were doing all this horrific actions, um, that they were sacrificing to the, to the Queen of Heaven, In their homes, they're sending out their their children to go gather wood for the fires that uh, some of them might even be burned on. And so we come to this, and we need to recognize this is one of the declarations that need to be made if we are going to move past God's wrath into his mercy. We all want to be in a position of being recipients of God's mercy and grace. But we want to do it without any requirement from us. That we should just be given that 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 blank slate, and God should just clear all the past without us even having to acknowledge that it existed. And rather, we find here in the declarations and lamentations uh, this repeated declaration that Jerusalem has sinned, that Jerusalem is in rebellion, that Jerusalem has broken the law that Jerusalem has not kept the commandments. The other person that we're going to be dealing with is the Lord. Um, Not the Babylonians. The Lord is the one who has brought this. And verse after verse after verse in this entire passage, beginning way back here in um, verse 9 and 10 and 11, uh, where we hear the people giving these brief declarations, we find that it's the Lord who is doing this. And so we are not going to be at the at a point where we're saying, well, the Lord isn't a part of this. We can't put that on as, yes, the Lord is a part of it. And when we encounter difficulties and hardships, we need to recognize that. And so we're going to look at this balance and um, begin to identify what was going on in Jerusalem, why, and how we can be... Uh, careful to avoid it happening in our lives. Before we do so, let's go learn prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. And we have a difficult passage before us, um, and we need your help. And we pray your spirit might guide this message to your uh, truth, and that we might uh, be responsive to it, that we might see uh, the devastation of not dealing with our sin in you and of cherishing it and thinking that we are immune because we are sitting in a church today. And so, Lord, guard us from that kind of arrogance and help us to be followers after you in righteousness and in truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we had already left off last week with Israel recognizing her sin, and we're going to be revisiting that as I shared Um, We find, though, that what did it take to get us to that point? What does it take to get arrogant people to, as the passage closed here, to get in silence and to get in mourning and to fall to their knees? And that's really the question that has been dogging us all through the book of Jeremiah. What's it going to take, people, And we begin thinking, well, God is always angry. God is uh, vindictive. Um, But what we fail to realize is that God has been trying to find that point as well. The answer to that very question, what's it going to take? That God was sending prophet after prophet after prophet. He sent warnings. He, He sent the Babylonians not once, not twice, but three times. Um, he even gave them a little reprieve the third time as the Babylonians went down to deal with the Egyptians. Did anyone repent? No. Instead of repenting, they cage up the prophet um, and they respond in, in even worse ways to say, aha, aha. Unless you think it's all over with once Jerusalem falls, even the survivors are going to persist that they survived. And once they survive, they, they give lip service. We're going to see that in Jeremiah in a little few weeks. They give lip service to following after God. But the fact is, when it comes down to actual choices, they choose their own way. And they're even going to take Jeremiah with them. <laughs> and drag him in, and basically make him a prisoner again. Drag him in with them to Egypt. And so, we recognize that what we are really dealing with is what does it take to bring people to their ground? with their heads to the ground, their voices in silence, where they're truly mourning. Um, And here, it's obvious that we have the loss of everything. And the fact is, is that men have an incredible resilience when it comes to their pride. We just all do. We have an incredible ability to sustain it, even in the most horrific environments. And that's what has been going on. They have been clinging to error, they've been clinging to falsehood all the way through this. They have ignored the warnings um, and they have exalted themselves above the righteousness of God, exalted themselves above the decrees of God, um, exalted themselves against the warnings and and the plain evidence that it's about to happen. You are surrounded by Babylonians. And instead of falling your face and repenting, what are you doing? You're throwing the prophet in a pit so that you can muster some courage among your soldiers of, of arms. What ludicrousness. And then you don't actually even really fight. You run away as soon as they breach your walls. And still no repentance. And so when we come to this declaration, Jerusalem has sinned gravely. When we come to in verse 8 of chapter 1, we go down to verse 18 of chapter 1. It says, the Lord is righteous. I rebelled against his commandment. There was rebellion in me. This is why this was necessary. And and God has responded to the nth degree because you have clung to your pride to the nth degree. Therefore, it was necessary for him to break you to this degree extent. And I just want to put out there a little bit of how long it took. See, we tend to think, um, because we are finite and have just a few days on the earth, that everything should happen quick and in our computer age, we really get upset if things take longer than three seconds. Um, Come on, you know you do. Uh, If you're Little lie God isn't responding in a three or three seconds. You're just smacking it, you know. Come on, what is wrong with this thing? Um, that's how we think things should be dealt with. And God has a very different framework of time because he is eternal. And, um, and so he has been warning them for decades. Decades. Warning, warning, warning. Remember all that happened to Israel That should have been a warning. Boy, they didn't listen. Look what happened to them. They were in their wealth. They were in their panel houses. They had it all. They ignored their prophets. And the Assyrians came down and just cleaned their clock. And the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem. Don't forget that. And the only thing that kept that from happening was repentance. So they have a historical reality, but they ignored it. And so God very patiently, and oh, let's talk about the patience of God. We're we're going to talk about the anger of God because the passage requires us to do so. But let's remind ourselves before we get to the wrath of God, to remind ourselves of the patience of God. That for year after year after year, that he warned and warned and warned and warned and waited and waited and waited for Israel to repent. And all they did was go into deeper and deeper and deeper sin. It grew worse and worse the longer he waited. The more he sent prophets to warn them, the more they hated him. And so before we start getting too disrupted by the fact that we have a God who is righteous and has righteous wrath, let us remind ourselves of how patient And loving, he has been for decades and has been completely ignored. And so they have stored this up for themselves. And so they have rebelled. And rebellion implies that they knew that they had this authority over them. They knew, there's ample evidence already in our study of Jeremiah that they knew Jeremiah was speaking the words of God. They knew it and they knew who God was. They knew that they had a responsibility to be obedient to it. And they rebelled against him. And let it be clear that that is what it is. It is a recognition you do have the authority, but I don't want to live under that authority. Parents have authority in their homes, but that doesn't mean children want to live under that authority, and so they rebel. And that's throughout all society, all the way up from the smallest unit, which is the family, all the way up to national, international things. It's what rebellion is. is recognizing there's authorities over me, but I don't want to live under that authority. I want to have my own authority. And that is rebellion. They also describe the wickedness and the, and the uh, lawlessness that was there, in there, that drew God to wrath, led him right up to it, and we're going to see what that means to its extent. And so, all of these things that it's going to say, the Lord, 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 and we're going to be traumatized by some of the things that it says the Lord did. Because we have been influenced by a philosophy that, Came out of what the 60s, 70s. God is love, that whole God is love thing, and and we boiled God down to one attribute, and uh, if anything didn't set well with us with that one attribute of God, that uh, we we said, oh, how can that be? That can't be. As though God is that simplified, um, and so God in His love waited, and then in His righteousness judged, but it was the rebellion the wickedness, the sinfulness, the lawlessness that he saw there in his people that he tried to draw them out from, but he could not bring them to their knees. And so we come into the condition of Jerusalem. We've already had a little bit of a look into it, but I didn't emphasize that because of knowing this was coming. Um, We saw a little bit when Jeremiah was down the pit and remember, Ebed goes and he says, listen, there's no bread. And if you put him in those kind of conditions, he'll die like that. Um, the indication is, is that, you know, you might say, well, he's going to starve to death up in the courtyard of the prison. Why is he going to die any faster down the pit? Well, your body requires a lot more energy to survive when you're down in a pit of slime of, or you sink into the mire Um, You need to think about this. This is underground in basically mud, slime. Um, What does your body need to survive? You're using a lot more energy in those environments. Um, Just try to go out there and, and just see how long people last in cold water. How much more energy that requires them to maintain their body temperature to keep them from dying. Well, there was no bread. And so we begin to see that they have already gone to that degree um, where there was no bread in the city. And uh, so you better put people in conditions that they can survive in um, by not requiring as much energy in them because there's no energy to provide. Well, we're going to see a look at this here in Lamentations. In chapter 1, verse 11, it says, All her people sigh." They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to destroy, to restore life. And so the city walls are watching the people, and they are looking, searching uh, for food. Um, It has become the commodity. Remember that God said three things are going to kill you. Um, Sword, famine, and pestilence. And so, Lamentations focuses almost exclusively on the famine aspect. It's going to come up again and again and again. Um, pestilence is, is going to kill many, um, but those are going to be considered mercy killings. Sword is going to kill many, and those are going to be considered mercy killings. In fact, in the book of Lamentations, you have a declaration. Uh, I don't want to give too much away for next week. Um, that um, says that the worst kind of death is the starve to death. Because it just gets drug out and drug out and drug out, and it's so slow and miserable. And they even say there that it was better for Sodom. They died in an hour. And we're dying in weeks, months, Years. And yes, it was well over a year of the siege here that they are slowly dying. And they're giving up everything, everything of valuable. In their hunt for food, they have given up everything else. All the other things they have clung to, everything else of any value. um, Suddenly, bread is more valuable than all the gold. It's more valuable than all your stuff. It's more valuable than your house. One loaf of bread. And this is exactly, by the way, remember the way it was when the Assyrians surrounded it? Where a loaf of bread was very expensive and and, uh, the prophet says, well, tomorrow it's going to be just a penny. What? How can that be? Well, the next day it was. God destroyed the Assyrians, they plundered the Assyrians' camp and there was bread everywhere. And the man that questioned it died. Didn't get to eat any of it. That laughed at that Prophecy. And so this is how valuable bread had become. There was none, and so what would you trade for, for some food? And that was the condition, and Lamentations keeps you referencing. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, because I'm not going to come back and focus on these verses when we get to those passages. I want to deal with it all now. It says in verse 19, arise, in chapter 2, verse 19, arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? And again, we find uh, evidence that there was a necessity to, as children were starving to death, they would be some of the first to die, that they were also eaten. They became a source of food, and every dead body became a source of food. And this is repeated in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, the tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps, and verse 10 of that same chapter, the hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is the condition of a city that has for months and months been cut off from all outside sources of food. And the nursing women dried up and they had nothing to feed their infants. Nothing. Their infants die, and the infants become food. Unless you think that what kind of wicked women are these, the Bible says it's the compassionate women that did this. Because they recognized that this life can maybe preserve that life. It was an act of compassion, not an act of wickedness. It was the desperation of the time. And all of this, it says, the Lord has afflicted in the day of his fierce anger. And we have concocted an image of God. Um, and, and I'm going to put the finger of blame right where it is. And it's in the right to life community, I'm, I'm convinced of that somehow uh, life is something that uh, God never violates, but he does all the time by necessity. And the the necessity of his of his destroying life is our sin. We force his hand to take life. And again, as I shared in times past, and here it's very blatantly in the passage. One of the strongest indications that God's anger is aroused against a people is when it is taken out on infants, preborn, and children. And we need to recognize that as a nation, as Christian community. We keep pointing the finger at abortionists, and we point the finger at unwed mothers and and all those who have had abortions, and we never recognize and seem to declare. And and In fact, what I hear most people say is, God's going to become angry at us if we keep this up. And we have failed to realize that God is angry at us and that's why it's happening. It is the expression of his anger is to destroy life at its root, at its youngest, at its most tender. It's where he begins. Not to bring about his anger, but as an expression of his anger. He's going to destroy a lot of life in this city. But among the first lives lost were the infants. This is the Lord's doing. And that, for you and I, is very disturbing. Because we've been inundated with the right to life. And I want you to understand, you nor I, nor your children, nor your unborn children, have a right to life. We have one right that we have earned by our sin, and it is death. And once we declare that man have a right to life, we are making a declaration to God, and it is an arrogant one. It is the expression of our pride that somehow, if God takes away life, that he is to be blamed, and we have a, court case against him of unfairness. There is nothing unfair in this. It is an expression of his anger, of his wrath, and it should wake us up to say, wow, we have sinned. How have we sinned? Not in the abortion clinic. We sinned way before it got there. Where did we sin when we started replacing God? With X, Y, or Z. Take your pick. When we start extracting God from the real God of the scriptures and true worship of him with religious activity, with um, the American dream, with all these things that are out there. And we started pursuing after those and we never pursued after God. We gave lip service to it like many of the survivors of Jerusalem. We're going to give lip service. We're going to do whatever God says until he tells us one thing that isn't what we want to (laughs) do. Then we're going to do whatever I want. And that's the American way. And then we say we have a right to life. No one in Jerusalem had a right to live, not even Jeremiah. And that's why God says when he gives out to these three people, your life is going to be a prize to you. Do any of you think you have a right to a prize? The whole concept of the prize is of something dear that is that is good. That is granted by this one, and and it's cherished. Ebed, you're going to have your life as a prize. Baruch, you're going to have your life as a prize. Jeremiah, your life is going to be a prize to you. That is, no one else can claim a right to it. And we need to begin to have a right handle on this. When we look at the devastation of what happens here in Jerusalem, And it turns our stomach, um, and it's very similar when you start seeing images out of the Holocaust and things like that, and and you go, ugh, and you don't want to watch it. And here's our declaration. How could God let that happen? Do you hear it? Do you hear you've just done? I'm not denying that God let that happen. God let that happen. It pleased him for that to happen. I believe it was very necessary in preparation for the coming to birth of the nation of Israel in our modern era. And it purged them. It purged the Jewish people. It was necessary before this end of the age. But listen to us. How could God let that happen? What have you just betrayed? You've just betrayed. You think God is only benevolent. And you have denied everything else around it. And you have refused in your arrogance to bend the knee, put your face to the ground, and said, we have done this by our sin. How could God let that the Holocaust happened. Well, how could God let this happen to Jerusalem? And that's what all of them were asking. And Jeremiah in Lamentations answers it. We have sinned grievously. We don't have a right to life. Our little infants, even those that we think of in terms of innocence, they're born in sin. They're the first to go, and we cook them to sustain everyone else. How could God let that happen? Because He is righteous. Because he patiently waited and sent prophet after prophet and we ignored him and we sinned more grievously and more grievously and we turned our heart and our pursuits more and more and more after the gods of this age and we ignored him more and more in our life and we marginalized him and we put him in one little corner of our life and we dominated all the rest with the Canaanite gods. And so yes, we deserve our children to die first. You don't even want to know the rumors in this country about what's going on with some of those parts. It is not cause for God's anger. It is the expression of God's anger it is the death of children and of the preborn, and even of the infant suckling at the breast and it's It's God. And throughout this, you cannot miss the fact that this is the Lord. Verse 12. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow toward the end of the verse, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger? The Lord set the Babylonians down there. The Lord inflicted this. Why? Why? Because of their sin. Look, from above, he sent fire into my bones. He has spread a net for my feet. He has made me desolate, verse 13. Verse 14, the yoke of my transgressions was bound, and now we find out, this is, this is and really it's woven, it's not bound, but, but um, here God has taken their transgressions and said, these are your bonds, You've tied yourself to my wrath by your own transgressions. God takes our sin, unrepentant, unconfessed. He takes our arrogance and he uses it to bind us up. They are woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck and he made my strength fail. The Lord did this. It's in his hands that I can't stand. I'm not able to stand this. But what was the means by which God was made to do these things? It was your transgressions. You wove this trap for yourself. Essentially, that's what he's saying. God simply took the materials you gave him and wove it into a net that ensnared you. And you see, this is foreign to our way of thinking, because we're pretty sure that if no one saw me, I got away with it. Hoo-hoo! be sure your sins will find you out. I'm pretty sure it's a biblical concept. Are we not familiar with those kinds of verses? That what is done in secret will be exposed in public? Don't think it's hidden? Do you really think the Lord isn't there? He's there. He's not ignorant of what's being looked at on on, the movie screen or on the computer screen, he's not ignorant of what you're reading, of what you're, he's not ignorant of any of it. Yeah, you're worshiping the queen of heaven on your rooftop during the week. God isn't stupid. He can't be fooled. And all those transgressions he weaves into a net that you can't break. Verse 15 The Lord has trampled underfoot he has called an assembly against me the Lord trampled as in a wine press Verse 17 the Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries and 18 is really the the central i think of this whole passage the Lord is righteous and it's going to go right back to it when we get to verse 20 the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And you get into chapter 2. The Lord covered the daughter of Zion, verse 1, with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel. And he's one that did not remember his footstool. The Lord swallowed up and is not pitied. Um, you can't miss it. The, the, the prophet has very clearly understood that. I'm not hating the Babylonians because they're God's instrument. And I'm not even hating the Lord, but I recognize that it's the Lord that has brought this on us. And it is not the Babylonians we need to deal with. It is the Lord we need to deal with. The problem here is that we have made ourselves an affront to God. A detestable thing. And if the nations (laughs) don't like Israel anymore, even the ones that used to love them... um, God made that happen. Why? Because of our sin. We have sinned grievously. We have rebelled. And we look at the conditions of Jerusalem and the devastation that's there and the complaint. God's anger has been aroused, and at this point, you're wondering, is there any hope at all? And rightly should you think that, because the anger of the Lord is not something to be trifled with. It is very real, and it is very potent. Yes, is the Lord all-powerful and can bless. Yes, he can provide. Lord Jehovah Jireh. um, All of those things, but he is also the God who can destroy. And when he has purposed to destroy, which is uh, in chapter 2, we're going to see that. um, Oh, let me get that. Chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying Therefore, he has caused the rampart Walt, and wall to lament. They languish together and the gates sink. And it goes on it goes through all the, all the architecture. I mean, God isn't content just to deal purify the people. He's going to destroy the architecture as well. It is lock, stock, and barrel that he is going to expose to his anger. And the fact is, most of us don't have a God in our mind that's capable of doing that. And that's why we still sit up and arrogantly thumb our nose at him time and again. Because that's not the God we know. We have fashioned this very effeminate, weak, soft God that can't ever do things like this. But if you come to Revelation, I would challenge you to read through the sixth seal the seven trumpets the seven bowls the seven thunders and tell me that our god can't do this he is extraordinarily capable of doing this and it becomes necessary to do this because of our sin and then there are those in many circles today including in conservative christian circles traditionally um, Bill bill's talking this morning about you know denying Deity of Christ, things like that. Um, but uh, here's what's been out there. You're not going to be in hell forever. How could a loving God have people in hell, in a lake of fire forever and ever? And they have gravitated to the Jehovah's Witness position that you go there and get burned up. Or they gravitate to... The Mormon position where you eventually work your way out of a bad place, not nice place, we'll put it like that. You can keep working once you get there, which is really just purgatory. you just or else your relatives pray or give you out of there. Um, we've gravitated there. Why? Because we don't understand this God. We don't want to believe it exists. We don't want to believe he's ever like this. But the fact is he has been like this. He did destroy the world with a flood. He did bring brimstone down on two cities. And today there's still evidence there of that. He did destroy Jerusalem in just this manner. Not once, but twice. He is a God that is capable of destroying. And it's time we woke up to that fact and realized that the primary ones that he's going to pour out his anger against are not the ignorant of his word, but the rebellious to his word. Please distinguish these. Why would, is it better for Sodom than it was for Jerusalem? Because they were ignorant of it in their sin. All they had was Lot, and all he did was sit at the gate and go, oh, this is terrible. And has vexed his righteous soul every day to sit in the gate, but he still sat in the gate. They were ignorant. And they were destroyed in an hour. These people were the farthest from ignorant of God. They knew Him. He had worked in their midst, and when His anger is poured out against them, by the way, in the flood, how quickly did everyone die? Pretty fast. I know it rained for forty days for nights, but a, you know, pfft, wall of water from the sky pretty much takes care of you. But Jerusalem, months of suffering and misery. To the point that it says no one has sorrowed like we sorrow. And when we see images of skeletons with skin on them from the Holocaust, that's what this looked like. And when they keeps talking about the children and the priests and the princes and the virgins and the mighty men being out in the streets, that's from pestilence. It's what they did during the Black Death. they drag them out there to be burned. Because there wasn't enough people to bury them. There was no place to bury them. The streets were filled with them. The Lord did this. Yes, injustice. He did this. Get a grip on it. It's who He is. He is righteous. Verse 18. The Lord is righteous. What do you do with rebellion? Well, you try and you try and you try and you try to give them opportunity to humble themselves, to repent. And they don't, and so he destroys. Now, as much as we're grieved by the images and the ideas of what has been portrayed here from the human standpoint of suffering, the city of Jerusalem has an even higher level of suffering that it wants to communicate to you. You say, there's something worse than eating your own children? Yes, God violates his own temple. And here the city speaking through Prophet Jeremiah speaking to the city talks about it. And in verse chapter two, verse six, he has done violence to his tabernacle, as if it were a garden, and you say, well. I thought a garden you keep. Well, sometimes you just wrote it till it all under, don't you? And that's a pretty violent act. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. He has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces to the hand of the enemy. Goes on and talks about breaking. So we see later on in chapter 4 and later parts of chapter 3 that, that he has just broken the law. The law is powerless now. He has allowed those who have no business being in this holy place to desecrate it. And this speaks volumes to the extent of God's wrath. And that's why our passage today, beginning in, in verse 8 and following all the way through, it, it begins there, it ends there. Verse 10 is where it talks about um, nations entered her sanctuary to whom you command not to enter your assembly. It begins there, and it kind of draws to a conclusion. in the working of God, it ends in that same Realm that the thing you kept saying was, This is where his temple is. He never let nothing, anything bad happen here. And now we find that God himself comes and does the violence against it. Yes, his instrument is the Babylonians. But let there be no mistake God brought them to this city for this purpose. And he destroyed his own temple because of what you have done to it. Remember that they had brought Canaanite worship into the very courtyards of the temple, saying it was equal to God. And so God destroys it. And just like a garden, you're like, I have to start all over and just want to plow it all under. I have to destroy it all and let it rest for a while before I can ever plant again. The violence done to his own temple speaks volumes of what it entails when you bring God to this point of anger. Now, how do we apply this when we come to the church? I'm not talking about church buildings, because they are not the temple of God in our age, are they? What is the temple of God in our age? Your body. What? Don't you know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. You have God, and you're not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Which is God's Corinthians. We have in the milieu of having this God that's weak and can only do good. We have sanctified ourselves. From the idea that if we pollute his temple, that he won't do anything about it because we're his kids. And I want to share with you a very simple principle. It's, good, it's simple, but it's not going to be one phrase. You have eternal life if you're a child of God and you will have a new body. You pollute this body. Do not think that you will be immune from God destroying it because His temple, because His Holy Spirit resides there. We think we can go and do whatever we want with these bodies and still call ourselves Christians And yes, I understand that we function in a spiritual realm, but God does not disassociate them quite so strongly as you or I are willing to do sometimes and say, oh, with my heart, my spirit, I I serve God with my body, I just serve me. It doesn't work that way. And when we pollute our bodies with the things of this world, when we exercise all of its energy and we set up within our physical frame two gods on equal footing claiming that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit but also demonstrating in my actions day to day that in fact there is another god who is sharing this temple do not be dismayed or surprised that God is willing to come in and do very violence to his own people to destroy this physical being This is the force of the whole Corinthian passage. Why are some of you getting ill and dying prematurely is the indication? Why? Because of what you're doing in your flesh. And that's the context of Paul telling, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And think about this. God will destroy your flesh. If necessary, if you refuse to sanctify him in your life, yes, he will take your life on this earth, out of that body, and that will be an act of his anger. And again, we have soft-pedaled this in our age, and, and... and I'm not here proposing that all sin and all death for every Christian is a result, or not all sin, all illness and all death for every Christian is a result of sin. But we have so distanced ourselves from recognizing that maybe more illness and more death among Christians is related to sin than we are ever willing to acknowledge. That we have set up these false gods in this temple of flesh that belongs to the Holy Spirit and God says I will have none of it. And yes the Corinthians were getting ill. They were dying prematurely and Paul says well of course look how you're treating the Lord's Supper. You think it's just a big party instead of taking it soberly. You are in your flesh doing the things of the world in fact you're doing worse than the world. You think you can sleep with whoever you want. You think you can you can have these illicit relationships? You think you can involve yourself in all this activity? You you and of course the one of the big ones in Corinthians, covetousness, which is idolatry. You think you can do all that in your flesh and God's gonna just sit there and say, Oh, I'm so glad you gave me Sunday. I'm so glad you read five verses out of my Bible in the morning and then live for yourself for the next 23 hours and 55 minutes. God is willing to do violence to his very temple when his people don't respond to his loving patience of calling them to obedience, repentance, He will spurn his altar. That's a very strong word. That uh, it's just a disregard for it. Oh, that we would be recognizing that it is time we made the Lord Lord. Not just of your forever eternity of heaven, but of your flesh today. Lest he, in his anger, destroy that flesh. He will not share it with another God. He will not let it go into perpetual sin. It will not be allowed. Now, does that mean next week you're all going to drop dead? If, not necessarily, because God is patient. <laughs> He's given you opportunities. Just like this opportunity to say, Lord, I'm not honored you in my flesh. I have other gods in my life. I'm pursuing them more than I'm pursuing you. I am setting myself up to be an object of your wrath. And if he's not going to pour out his wrath on me in eternity, where is he going to pour out his wrath on you? Right here, right now. In this flesh. This is where you're going to experience it. So we come to God and we acknowledge and we do what, Jerusalem finally kind of did. We have sinned gravely. We have been in rebellion. We have tied our own knots. We have tied our own fetters with our own sin. And don't think that God is unwilling to destroy his own temple. He will. He has. He will again if necessary. So what is our response? Our response is verse 10 of chapter 2. And we either start here or we end here. (laughs) Frankly, you either start here or you end here. You start with your face to the ground before the God of all the earth And humble yourself before Him and seek His face and strive after Him in righteousness and in truth with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And when we talk about strength, we're talking about your flesh, your physical frame. We're talking about your mind. We're talking about what you're thinking. We're talking, we often think about spirit and soul and heart. That's your will. Your heart is your will in Scripture that you're giving all of these to Him to serve Him, that they are all going to be pursuing Him. We either start in this position and in this condition of recognizing that we are sinners and we ought to have something to mourn and we bow our heads to the ground before Him either now to begin a walk that is righteous and gives evidence of his work in our life that he might magnify himself in us and bless us, or we will end there after a horrible, miserable starvation spiritually and physically and mentally. And so I'm going to get real personal here's what I see happening. And I see it happening there. I see it happening around me here. Pride. Always comes before a fall. Which brings selfishness. Me and mine. I'm going to think about me, I'm going to think about mine. Me and mine, me and mine. Selfishness. And what I see when selfishness captivates someone and gets hold of their mind, and it's me and mine, and it's me and my family, me and my stuff, me and my whatever. The first evidence of spiritual starvation is discontentment. And that's why Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, what's great loss? (laughs) No contentment. In selfishness, the first step of starvation spiritually, I believe, is discontentment. Nothing's enough. And that's not evidence that Others aren't providing it for you. That's evidence that you are focused on yourself. Selfishness. Born out of pride. And that's what was going on here in Israel. There was never enough, never enough, never enough. There's not going to be enough later. They're going to survive. The survivors of this are going to be driven. And the next level of starvation becomes fear. Fear. And we see the spiritual starvation where, where God tells us to be strong and be very courageous. What takes, captivates us with the discontentment comes this fear. Not fear of God, not that awe, not that reverence, but rather fear of trusting him. Fear of following him. Fear that if I really live out that radical Christian life, I don't know if I can survive that. I've had plenty of people walk away say, well, I can't do what you're asking me to do. It's too hard. I'm afraid. You're afraid that you might lose your job. You're afraid you might lose your house, your marriage, your kids. And the sad, sad conclusion of the matter is they lose it all. I have not been a minister for very long. And I've seen many people turn from when I was an intern in Ohio um, to recent years. I've seen people say, I can't do that. It's too hard. I'm too afraid. You're asking too much of me. And they're afraid of losing all these things of this earth. And what they lose in the midst of that is their relationship with God and all the things they were clinging to so hard. They lose it all. And from a parent that says, I can't let my child even think about going into the ministry. And they lost that child. Not to the ministry, but to the world. And so we are called to stop the root. And the root is pride and selfishness. These people wanted their own God. They didn't want to submit themselves. And so At the end, every knee will bow, will it not? Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Either they will do it now and live for the Lord, or they will do it then, having been starved to destruction, spiritually, physically, mentally, in every capacity, and they will have eternal death. These people, in silence, in verse 10... Sit on the ground. Throw dust on their heads. And they're done. It's over. Jerusalem's gone. There's nothing but silence. They can't serve God. For they are no more. And the few survivors left in the land are going to be destroyed in just a few months. Again, by their own sin. This is what God does with sin. And this is why we hate it. And This is why we repent of it. This is why we confess it. This is why we ask for his cleansing. This is why we turn from it. This is why we seek his salvation is because God can purpose in his heart to destroy. He is capable He has demonstrated it before. He has promised he will do it again. Which side of the equation do you want to be on? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for lamentations. Not a book we want to pick up and read, but a book we desperately need to read and do more than read, obey. To see the principles at work and to see the devastation that happens when we give you the raw materials, our sin, to form our own net of destruction. Lord, we confess that we have pursued other things than you with more of our flesh and more of our intelligence and more of our will, And we recognize that this is just an attempt to set up another God in our temple next to you. Lord, today we know that if we didn't know it before, we know it now. That's abhorrent to you. So Lord, help us to pursue you with all that we are and all that we have. That it might be the theme not of a week or a day or an hour, but a theme of our lives we have pursued you and not ourselves, not me and mine, but you and yours. Lord, we want you to have the preeminence among us and in us. We know that that requires something of us, and that is that we humble ourselves before you, seek your face, and walk in your ways. And Lord, give us such a heart today and each day. In Christ Jesus' name. Amen.